with that, grab your Bibles, turn to 2 Kings chapter 6. Now, I know you're saying, well, preacher, the bulletin says Matthew chapter 14. And I'm going to say, well, church member, that is not the inerrant word of God. And the person who told our secretary to put Matthew 14 in there was wrong. He's never been wrong before in his life. Uh, but um, I, I yesterday was, was reading some stuff and really thinking about some things. And for some reason, the most random passage came to my mind. And uh, I stayed up till late last night, or really I should say this morning, uh, to rework the message. Um, I don't know why. Um, but uh, we can do Matthew tonight, that's fine. But I uh, really feel like this is where we need to be. 2 Kings chapter 6 is page 334 of you pew Bibles. And if you will, stand with me out of reverence for God's holy word. The writer of 2 Kings writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, starting in verse 1. Now the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See, the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan, each of us get there a log, and let us make a place for us to dwell there. He answered, Go. One of them said, Be pleased to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. So he went with them, and when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was felling a log, his axe fell into the water, and he cried out, Alas, my master, it was borrowed. Then the man of God said, Where did it fall? When he showed him the place, he cut off a stick, threw it in there, made the iron float, and he said, take it up. So he reached out his hand and took it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, thank you for your love and your mercy. Thank you for uh, your kindness and grace that we can gather together with your word open. May we grow as a result of it. Open our hearts and our minds and our eyes and our ears, our mouth, our hands and our feet, that we will go in obedience to Christ. Lord, this is not a passage that we may be familiar with or read often. May we see that all your... Scripture is given to us by God that points us to Jesus. And may I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Tell me if this scenario sounds familiar. Economic strength, corrupt leadership, international upheaval, spiritual malaise, moral decay, and idolatry all around. That is not just America in the 21st century. That is the state of Israel in the age of the prophets Elijah and Elisha. At this time, King Jerem, who was the son of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, was now on Israel's throne. And what we find about King Jerem is that the apple did not fall far from the tree. In fact, if, you, if we had time, if you read 2 Kings 3, it says, Now King Jerem was bad. Not like his dad bad, but he's still bad. Now, whenever you're said bad, but not as bad as that guy, that means you're still a terrible human being, right? You are still a terrible king. And King Jerem was terrible for Israel. Yes, they were a mighty economic powerhouse, but they were as corrupt as corrupt could be. Now, though the nation of Israel was in moral and spiritual decay, that does not mean God abandoned his people of the northern tribes. This is clearly seen in that God sent to Israel prophets. The most notable of those prophets we've already mentioned, Elijah the Tishbite and his uh, young Padawan, for you Star Wars fans, Elisha. Don't confuse Elijah and Elisha, and I can't imagine why you would ever confuse Elijah and Elisha, right? 
But here we have the prophet Elisha. And, and, and you could in many ways summarize his entire ministry with 14 Miracles. In fact, what you get with Elijah are seven major miracles. Elijah, you may remember, we we study the story of Elijah, but Elisha, before Elijah went to be with the Lord, are you lost yet? Good. He asked for a double portion of Elijah's spirit, and he's given that. Elijah, we're given seven miracles. Elisha, we're given 14 miracles. Can I get you up to speed with the first 10 leading up to this? This is number 11. Up to speed, the first 10. 2 Kings 2, Elijah divides the waters of the Jordan. Sound familiar? Yeah, he's just like Moses. 2 Kings 2, 19 to 22, Elisha heals the water near Jericho. Also in chapter 2, he, he, he sends two she-bears to maul 42 young people. I, I, I don't know of another parallel to that, but I kind of wish there was, right? In chapter 3, Elisha fills the valley with water to support Israel, Judah, and Edom, who are, in, are in, who are allies against the Moabites. In 2 Kings 4, Elisha helps an impoverished woman pay her debts through, through the selling of oils. 2 Kings 4, he raises the Shumanite's son from, from death. Also in chapter 4, he purifies poison stew. There's death in the pot, you may remember. He then uh, feeds 100 men with bread and grain, clearly uh, repeated later in the story of Jesus, which is actually what we'll look at tonight in Matthew 14. In chapter 5, he cleanses Naaman of leprosy. He then turns around and condemns Gehazi with Naaman's leprosy. And in chapter 6, he makes an axe float. You really think about it. That last one, The one we have in front of us is not impressive at all. Raising the dead, feeding a multitude, cleansing one guy of leprosy, causing another person to get leprosy. That's the power I want. Or or to send bears out of the woods to maul teenagers for their TikTok videos. I mean, that's a power I want. And I will vote for you if you promise to deliver on that. Yeah, it's getting, it's getting hot in here, all right? We've got to loosen it up here, all right? Start. This one is about an axe floating. But here, when we read it in its proper context, and what is actually happening here, we find here a real story that I think that really affects us today in a similar context. In the first four verses, we meet the friends, right? And they're right there in verse one. Now, the sons of the prophets said to Elisha. Now, if we had time, you're welcome for me cutting a lot of things out, um, is, is we could look at who the sons of the prophets were. They're all over the place, the story of Elijah and Elisha. They do likely appear in the time of Samuel and Saul and David, and even in the time of Amos. Remember when Amos says, I am not a prophet or a son of a prophet? That language of son of prophet is likely a reference to, to, to this generations of, of prophets being raised in Israel. But just for our sake, let's just, just call this a seminary for prophets, right? That's basically what it is that you have here. It is an Iron Age seminary for Iron Age prophets, And what you have is that Elijah would have been the head of these seminaries. And there's seminaries all over the place in Gilgal, like this one, and and other places. And and with the passing of the torch to Elisha makes this prophet Elisha the now the one in authority. 
And in verse 1, the, the need is, is mentioned there, right? See, the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. So what we have then is the Gilgal Baptist Theological Seminary for Prophets. And what we have is a practical problem. And the problem is they have outgrown their facilities. And we should pause there and say this is usually a good thing. It indicates growth. It indicates the movement has grown beyond what previous construction had anticipated, right? It, it, it even indicates increased influence, right? Remember that what we have here is a society that, that, is, that is dark spiritually. Yet what we see is that the school of the prophets, the, the Gilgal Baptist Theological Seminary, is growing despite the darkness of society. Right, this is the way we understand uh, expanding and the need of new construction at institutions, right? You can look at our church. When this church founded, it wasn't a church. It was called a mission. It was a mission of Crestwood Baptist Church. And we met, we rented out a room in the then Elkhorn Elementary School off East Main. And then we became a church in August of 1962, officially. And what we needed was a place to worship. So we bought a house called a Leonard House. And that house was located, if you look at these stained glass windows, right there in that parking lot. And then we outgrew that, so we built a, 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 a church building, a more permanent place. That is what this back part is. And then we needed more space, and so we built a new sanctuary. That's what you're in now. And then after that, we needed more space, so we added a, a new fellowship hall and kitchen and added Sunday school rooms, and that's where you just came from prior to, to worship. Right? We get this, right? That every institution, as it grows, as it expands, needs added construction. And what good news this is, that despite the cultural and spiritual malaise of the days of Elisha, there seems to be a hint of an increase of interest in Yahweh. And so the plan is laid out there in verse 2. Let us go to the Jordan, and each of us get there a log, and let us make a place for us to dwell there. Notice, they want to travel to the Jordan River. They want to cut logs and construct a new seminary. There's a lot there we can conclude. We, we, we again, won't take the time to do all of it. But what we can say, at least, is that these men are humble and poor. Remember that there is great economic strength throughout Israel, particularly in the palace where, where Ahab and Jerem had made their palace of, of ivory and cedar and, 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 and all kinds of, of, of nice materials, these gentlemen choose rather the, the logs near the Jordan River. And so they will themselves cut it down. They, they can't afford to hire it out. They've got to cut it down. They've got to fashion for themselves a new seminary. We also see that these are industrious men. I love this, seeing ministers working, because we all know they only did this one day a week, right? Right, isn't that, hey, that's, that's, that's the way my preacher was growing up. At least that's what my Grammy told me, right? But, but here you have industrious prophets who, who, who construct this and get all the plans together and, and, and uh, despite their humility and poverty. In verses 3 to 4, we see the invitation they extend to Elisha. It's there. Uh, it says, one of them said, please be pleased to go with your servants. And Elisha agrees to do that. So they, are, they receive approval from Elisha to, to build this 
new seminary. He's invited to join them and, and notice that they want him to be there uh, and to be under his watchful eye. They know that God's spirit is upon Elisha and they want to be near him for that. And this is truly an example of discipleship that is mirrored in the ministry of Jesus. Here you have one who, who, who is the rabbi, the head of the prophets, and he, he, he teaches them and, and disciples them, and Jesus will do the same later. But you'll notice that this group of friends turns into a moment of frustration there in verse 5. It says that uh, as one was felling a log, his axe head fell into the water, and he cried out, Alas, my master, it was borrowed. So Elijah arrives at the construction site, and he's taking it all in. What he sees is a swarm of busy bees chopping wood and building this new seminary. And no doubt this has to be an exciting moment for him, right? You remember the story of Elijah. We looked at it several years ago. You remember that whenever Elijah has this great triumphal moment, he calls down fire from heaven, and then, and then a bunch of the prophets are then executed, right? It's, 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 a, it's a really awesome scene. You remember what happens? Jezebel targets him. He, he freezes his, his finances, um, and, 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 and he, she's going to kill him, right? So he flees to the mountain of God, and they're in a cave. He says, I am all alone. There's no one with me, no one to support me. It doesn't matter how successful I might be, no one seems to care. And then you can cut to the next generation, and what does Elisha find? He's an increased seminary of young men, passionate about ministry, passionate about God's calling upon their lives, and here they are, under his leadership, building this new seminary. What a change from, from Elijah's experience to, to what Elisha was witnessing. Now, God had told Elijah that, that he had saved for himself a remnant within Israel, and Elisha is in many ways witnessing that. However, one of those students chopped away out of the tree, and a simple accident happens. And one fell swoop. You can almost see him, right? You know, backing up like, like Babe Ruth, right? Ken Griffey Jr., Swings the axe. I know you don't swing an axe like that. And the axe falls, the head of the axe falls off the handle and drops into the river. Now remember, this is the iron age. And for those of you who went to public school in Owen County, you need to know iron sinks. It sinks like your cell phone. It sinks like those diamonds your husband just got you, right? Or husbands, it sinks like that wedding ring, right? Oh, no. I, I need to replace this before she notices. Let me tell you, men, she's already noticed, okay? Already noticed. I think my dad lost the wedding ring within six weeks of getting married. I mean, I, if, if any of you have beaten that record, I would love to talk to your wife. I mean, I'd like to talk to you, but I'd really like to talk to your wife. Uh, that way I'll have something on you. It sinks like a car. Sinks like in-laws, right? That they all sink, right? I mean, it, it, it sinks. And so that's a problem. You, the tool, the primary tool you need for this project, it sinks. Now, a couple of things to note here. First of all, iron at this time was a rare commodity. Now, if we need an axe, you can go get you an axe. Or if you're lazy like I am and don't like to shop, you can order an axe on Amazon to be in a day or two, right? They're relatively cheap today, but 
We don't live in an iron age. We live in a modern age. At this time, iron was a rare commodity, particularly in Israel. In fact, if we had time, we could read 1 Samuel 13, where, where Israelites have to uh, build their own weapons, and they have to actually go into the Philistine area to, to, to be taught how to make iron. And the implication is, is that the Philistines had a type of monopoly on such iron, how to make tools and weapons with iron. So they had to go to them. Thus, this iron axe head would have been rare, and as a result, it would have been very expensive. Further, we need to know that this iron axe head was borrowed. The word borrow there in verse 5 is the Hebrew word for ask. He, he, he went and asked for it. Or if, if you're from Owen County, he asked for it, right? He asked. One commentator compared losing this axe head to the bottom of the river to wrecking a borrowed car. I remember that before, living, before moving to Frankfurt, my wife, <coughs> my wife and I had two cars from high school. We were still driving, and they both died within like a month of each other. We had no car, and there was no prospect of us buying a car. We didn't know what to do. And near us was, was a member of our church. She, 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 she died uh, right before we, we moved here at 100 years old, one of the greatest women I've ever known in my life. And she had a car, and she couldn't drive the car. She was allowed to drive the car, but she needed the security that there was a car out there in case of an emergency, right? And so she said, well, my car needs to be driven. Why don't you drive my car? And then I did. In fact, uh, she, she left that car to us in her will. That's the car, that little Buick that, we, that I drove whenever we moved here. It was, it was hers. And, and I remember every time I went to drive that car, maybe I was going to seminary, maybe I was just out and about, whatever it was. I remember thinking, please, Lord, do not let me wreck this car. If I do, let it be that I die in it, right? I, I, I just don't want, to, I, I don't want to deal with that. That is not a good thing, right? You don't want to do that. You, you borrow your parents' car. You borrow something from a neighbor. And the last thing you want is to lose it or to wreck it or, or to, to destroy it. And remember, these men are poor. Thus, losing the axe head would have required him to replace this very expensive tool. And so the question then is, how will he replace this tool? Well, the Bible is very clear on that. And that is, if you cannot afford it, it must come by means of indentured servanthood. This man is at risk of leaving the seminary to become a slave. You can read that in Exodus 22 and other places. No wonder then, as he watches it sink into the river, he shouts, my Lord, my axe head is gone. It was borrowed. So finally, we see the fortune in verses six and seven. The man of God, as Elisha said, <coughs> where did it fall? When he showed him the place, he cut off a stick, threw it in there, made the iron float, and he said, take it up. So he reached out his hand and took it. It's interesting, isn't it, that in his panic, the unnamed man turns immediately to his master. I would have turned to Twitter. I would have turned to someone who would sympathize with me. Or I would have turned to the tree and cursed it <laughs> and said, how dare you do this to me? I would have turned to the nearest government official and blamed them. I would have turned to 24 hours news cycle and blamed it. I would have found someone to blame, someone who would sympathize. Not this man. 
He turns to Elijah, Elisha. And so what does Elisha do? Well, he grabs a stick. There's a lot of that around. After all, they're chopping wood. He grabs a stick and he throws into a river. You're thinking, well, great. Now we've got a stick floating down the river and we got an axe head still at the bottom of the river. A lot of good that is going to do us, Elisha. Great plan. You're, you're, you're the guy in charge of this place. But regardless, he threw the stick in and it, and it floats. Now, we need to note here, it is not news either to us or to the writer that this violates natural law. This is something that, that I, I find really odd about when people read the Bible. Well, don't people know that, that the blind can't see? Don't, don't people know that the mute don't talk? And don't people know that you can't just randomly tell she bears to go maul a bunch of teenagers? And then don't you know that iron doesn't float? Obviously. Which is why it is so noteworthy it's put in the Bible. Right? I mean, look, if the story was this guy, he's, he's being careless, and he throws an iron axe head into, into the river, and get this, watch this. It's sunk. This is the word of God. Right, right, no, no, no. I mean, that's what happened every day. Plenty of people lost things at the bottom of the river. You can probably go to the Jordan River now and find something that is buried down there that was lost during this time. Could be an iron axe head for all I know that you could find. This isn't news. This is typical, which means when throwing the stick in causes it to suddenly float, that means this is the 11th miracle that, that Elisha has performed in his ministry. I think the best description of this actually comes from the King James. So those of you who think I don't like King Jimmy, you're going to love this because this is a great, artistic, beautiful way to describe this event. 2 Kings 6.6 6 in the King James. The man of God said, where fell it? And he showed him the place and he cut down a stick, cast it in thither. But here it is. And the iron did swim. I love that. You see, the word for axe head is the Hebrew word for iron. And the iron did swim. So the man, in verse 7, sees the swimming axe, reaches out, takes it, and presumably returns to work. End of story. So I'll bow our heads, call it a day, and go eat fried chicken. What does this have to do with the price of bread in China? I think it has a lot to do. I don't know about China, but it certainly has a lot to do with you and I. When you consider the numerous miracles of the Bible, this, this is among the least impressive. No one is dead. No one is sick. No one is drowning. No one is demonized or leprous. No one is at war. No one is starving. No one is suffering. All that happens is a man loses his tool. And the prophet helps him find it. That, that, that is the story. That is the story. But I do think there's some things that we really need to hear this morning. The first thing I think we need to see is that the ordinary is indeed extraordinary. There's a great temptation for a lot of readers and commentators of this text to allegorize this text, to find some hidden meaning here. The most prominent is to see its connection with the old Exodus and with the new Exodus. 
For example, what you'll see is, is see, what Elisha is doing, he's ushering Israel through a new exodus. So, so what you have then is the prophet leading the people through a wilderness, and he's building not a tabernacle, but a seminary. Maybe. Some see this as an eschatological exodus. That is one way in the future. And here they point not to Moses, they point forward to, to Jonah. Actually, be more backwards, but they point to Jonah. Just as Jonah w- w- went swimming, right? And he drowned in the ocean. And, and God brought him back. So too, this axe head represents Israel. That in judgment is being drowned, but by God's grace it is coming back. And the hope of Israel is the messianic hope that a new exodus will come and she will return. Maybe. If those don't work, you could do what a lot of bad preaching does with every text, and that is you moralize the text. So you, you, can, you can Google this now, because I did it about 1 o'clock this morning. You, you can look at all kinds of stuff. It's it like, how to sharpen your edge. I don't know what that means, but it sounds really good, and, and I hope he writes a book about it, right? How to sharpen your edge. How to keep from losing your edge. How to stay sharp, right? Again, I don't know what any of that means, but it sounds really good. And the reason we, we, we have this temptation to algorize or moralize the text is because it's such a boring story. And so we try to make the ordinary extraordinary. There has to be a deeper meaning here, right? Right? And allegories and moralism is a great way to make simple things deep. But maybe the simplicity is purposeful. When Martin Luther, at least according to legend, was one day asked, what would you do if you knew the Lord would return tomorrow? His answer, again, according to legend, was he responded with, I will still plant my apple tree. Ordinary obedience is extraordinary in the kingdom of God. It is American bravado that believes only the extraordinary matters. A large following, published books, wealthy friends, and connections in high places. The Bible cares about the ordinary. After all, Jesus changed the world with a group of fishermen and not an academic among them. Although we may not see it, God is glorified in the daily grind of faithful Christianity. One of the things I love about Martin Luther is is that when he reflected on fatherhood, he condemned those who, who were critical of dads who changed diapers. He would say that what the father is doing in changing his child's diaper is of infinitely more importance than the fool is in criticizing the dad who is changing diapers. You're investing in the next generation. You're loving children. And you are modeling God the Father who has had to clean up after you once or twice, hasn't he? This man right here chopping down a tree is as much part of God's divine plan as Elisha is when he raises the widow's son. I want you to pause and really think about that. By swinging an axe in obedience to his master, he is of equal obedience as when Elisha confronts kings. Do you realize that? Even right now, loving children in a nursery 
Spending time with your spouse, serving others thanklessly is of equal importance than pounding a pulpit and teaching the Bible. You ever thought of that? It isn't that we need to make the ordinary extraordinary. It's that the ordinary is extraordinary. Do not mitigate ordinary faithfulness. Husbands, love your wives as Christ has loved you. Wives, respect your husbands and honor them. Believers, read your Bibles regularly. Disciples, pray and then pray again. Parents, raise your children to fear and to love the Lord. Church, tell others about Jesus. Ordinary things, simple things, God things. Not only that, we need to see that desperation is not failure. Desperation is not failure. Put yourself in the student's shoes here. The panic in his voice is very apparent. He helplessly watches the iron sink to the bottom of the river, and his heart begins to sink. You felt that right before, right? Right? I'm, I'm doomed, right? I remember first wreck I was ever in, total dad's car. I mean, what a story, right? And I remember my first thought was, I'm going to die. And then I realized I wasn't going to die, that the car stopped moving. I thought, dad's going to kill me. I'm going to die, Right? You get that sinking feeling, right? We, we, we've, we've all had that. And then I thought, what are cell phones? I got to figure out how to get out of here. So I'm walking from one place to another in the middle of nowhere. It's Grant County, the worst, right? And, and, and second only to Carroll County. We, we can agree on that, can't we? I think we can. Now, we can only speculate his whole story, right? Maybe he was negligent, right? It's likely the axe was already showing signs of wear and tear. With it, each swing, perhaps he can feel the loosening of the head uh, on the axe, and he just ignores those signs. Maybe he was inexperienced. Perhaps he was the sort of guy who, who just wanted to help, and so he went and borrowed a friend's axe, and he just went to work. This does seem like a foolish thing to do here, right? How do you lose an axe head when you're chopping down a tree? Carelessness is common with the inexperienced. Uh, about a year ago, I, I watched through all the Duck Dynasty episodes again. You're welcome, just for this illustration. And one of the greatest lines comes from Chase Robertson, who says, if you don't know what you're doing, you might as well do it quickly. And let me tell you, we McDaniels, we live by that rule, right? If you don't know what you're doing, you might as well do it fast, right? Because you're going to get the same result either way. Maybe that's what this man is doing. Regardless, this is a moment of despair, doubt, and struggle. You can almost hear it in his voice, isn't he? As he's holding what's left of that axe, as he's, he's contemplating, realizing that his, his life is about to change and he made a serious mistake. And it was only an accident. He intended nothing bad to come of this, but this is a serious problem for him. He's let everyone down. And you can almost think he's saying, well, you know, maybe, just maybe, I'm not really cut out for this proper thing. Maybe when all the sweet ladies at my home church gather around me and says, we feel like the Lord has a call upon your life, maybe, maybe they were wrong. Maybe I made a big mistake in coming out here. I'm not cut out like all these other guys. They're not having any problems. Their life seems perfect. Look at me. I can't even swing an axe. I can't use me. Everyone else seems to be doing just fine. Maybe our little seminary would be better without me. You can hear the despair in his voice. 
But what separates this man from most of us is that his first act is to turn to his master. He knew the stories. The dead had been raised. Lepers had been cleansed. And bears would follow his every command. Surely he can handle a little bit of iron at the bottom of the river. When Charles Spurgeon first became a preacher, he was almost immediately thrust into popularity. The church that he began to pastor couldn't handle the crowds that would come here, the prince of preachers, as he's known as. So one weekend, the, the church decided they would rent out a large music hall known as the Royal Surrey Gardens Music Hall so that thousands at one time could hear him preach. On the first night, in the crowded hall, a fool shouted, Fire! Fire! Causing a stampede as people looked for exits. As a result of that act, dozens were injured and two were trampled to death. For the rest of his life, Spurgeon struggled with the depression coming from that event. In fact, it was weeks, if not months, before he ever preached again in his church. Even then he came, he said, I, I, I come really to say nothing to you. Still was not over the event. He would spend days and even weeks locked in his room, in his bed, suffering from despair and depression. One passage came to him over and over again. And the iron did swim. In the sword and trial he wrote, Beloved reader, what is thy desperate case? What heavy matter hast thou in hand? Bring it hither. The God of the prophets lives and lives to help his saints. Believe in the Lord of hosts. Approach him pleading the name of Jesus and the iron shall swim. You too shall see the finger of God working marvels for his people. According to your faith shall it be unto you and yet again the iron shall swim. I don't really know what it is that is the source of your despair here this morning. Maybe it is moral failure. Maybe it is uh, feeling like a disappointment. Maybe it's failing to achieve all that you wanted or all that you felt you were, you, you were, you were cast to, to, to achieve. Maybe it's trying circumstances. But please know the iron will swim if you turn to your master. I'll be honest with you, one of the main motivations of this text that has me so gripped here this morning is the rapid spiritual despondency brought about by coronavirus. Now, to be clear, COVID is not the cause of such a malaise. Rather, it simply removed the blindfold. We as churches and ministry leaders have know that we have been sick for decades, but building projects and budgets have hidden the real spiritual decay of our communities. And then COVID hit and the blindfolds came off. Depression is up among ministers. Frustration has skyrocketed among members. And the uncertainty of the future of the church is very real. But the good news is the iron will swim if we turn to our master. 
In the late 18th century, as it was closing in 1798 and 1799, the population of Kentucky was booming as the state was still in its infancy, found in 1792 and people moving in the decades before that. And what you found with Kentucky is that people came for land, they didn't come for Jesus. As a result, as the population of Kentucky increased, the number of people gathering in worship on every Sunday was on the decline. There was a clear spiritual malaise. In his reflection on this, David Barroway, a Baptist pastor, said, Of all the denominations I can remember to have seen in Kentucky, the Deists, the Nothingarians, and the Anythingarians are the most numerous. John Taylor, who, who, who founded and pastored Cedar Grove in Versailles and served in the Buck Run and Forks of Elkhorn and others, wrote, quote, many feared, this is after a funeral of a pastor, many feared they should never hear again the joyful tidings of the conversion of sinners or see more people baptized. Indeed, myself was very much overwhelmed with these kinds of feelings. J. H. Spencer, the author of the History of Kentucky, wrote, uh, Kentucky Baptists, rather, the beginning of the year 1800 was the darkest period that had ever occurred in religious history of the Mississippi Valley. The gloom had been thickening year after year. The land was now enveloped in darkness. My favorite story out of this it came out of the Elkhorn Baptist Association, which included Frankfurt churches. And there, in, in their annual meeting in 1800, you can read it in the minutes. I can show it to you. The, 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 uh, Augustine Easton was a local pastor serving as clerk, and he read all the letters that churches sent into the association saying, this is how many we baptized. This is what our church bill looks like. This is how many people were discipling, all of that sort of stuff. And he commented, he said, there is great suppiness among our churches. What he means is, we're all in a malaise. We all see their spiritual decay, and there seems to be no hope for us. Little did Augustine Easton know that days later, the greatest revival ever to hit Kentucky was about to commence. I quoted John Taylor there in a second, or there a second ago. John Taylor was asked to preach in Gent, Kentucky, Carroll County. You didn't even know God was there. Asked to preach in Gent, Kentucky, not a church around. A group of Baptists and Methodists got together to, to sort of work through some things, and they invited John Taylor, who was up in northern Kentucky. He, he agreed to preach, but he confessed he had no intention of God doing anything there. Hours later, revival broke out among Baptists in Kentucky. He followed there, went back to Cedar Grove, more revival. In fact, the revival was so significant the number of members in the Elkhorn Association in three years tripled. The number of churches doubled. There's great suppiness in the land. But the iron did swim. In every miracle of the Bible, there is a desperate soul in need. And in every one of those miracles, that desperate soul turns to the master. Desperation does not mean failure. It means it is time to turn to the master. Third and finally, Christ is a sweet redeemer. If we had time, we could look at this more fully. Maybe one of these days we'll look at the biography of Elisha like we did Elijah and now with David. 
But many of Elisha's miracles overlap either with his own story or with other stories. So when he crosses the Jordan River, that's obviously connected with Joshua crossing the Jordan and Moses crossing the Red Sea. There's a lot of that going on in his story. But even among his miracles, there are themes that overlap with each other. One example of this is to compare this story with him uh, healing and serving an impoverished woman. Uh, he, he would raise her son and he would provide for her through <coughs> the selling of oil. And so just as he delivered her from certain slavery, she couldn't pay her bills, so too, in this case, he delivers this student from certain slavery by, by bringing back the axe, right? He does so by restoring life and property. You can see the connection between the two stories. And if you wanted to, he even uses the same language. He tells the man here to take up the axe. He tells the woman after he raises the son to pick up her son. He uses the same language in the Hebrew. The point is that what we are to see here in these two narratives and others like it is that Elisha is acting as a type of kinsman redeemer. That is, that had Elisha not intervened, they would become slaves to debts. And they would have to work until that debt was slave. But when Elisha intervened, he redeemed them from that debt. A story that was prominent in the story of Ruth. When Boaz becomes a kinsman redeemer. And scripture is clear that that, 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 that is a messianic theme. That the redeemer comes to set captives free. And I can think of a true and better kinsman redeemer, can't you? It is no accident the early church father, Origen, I've got my beef with him on some things, but he, was, he, he loved allegory, but it's no accident that when he saw wood in the story, and it was the kinsman redeemer with the wood, he made a beeline to the cross. And that may be a bit too much for me in interpretation, but I like the sentiments. What we have here is a master who is redeemer. And Christ is that sweet redeemer. The temptation for you and I is as we are in the spiritual malaise, the thing that, 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 that I can fix it. We can change programs. We, 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 we can renovate this or that. Or maybe the next generation will figure it out. No, no, no. The answer is we have a sweet redeemer in Christ And that is sufficient for us all. The iron did float. Would you agree? But I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry from the waters lifted me now safe am I love lifted me love lifted me when nothing else would help love lifted me souls in danger look above Jesus completely saves He will lift you by his love out of the angry waves. He's the master of the sea. Billows his will obey. He, your savior, wants to be. Be saved today. Love lifted me. When nothing else could help. Love 
lifted me. Let's pray.